We resume this evening our consideration of the 11th verse in the 6th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We begin a consideration of this most important and vital verse last Friday evening when I indicated to you that it is the first exhortation actually in this epistle to the Romans. And therefore we must pay great attention to it, making certain that we are indeed doing what the apostle asks us to do. Now, we notice this, and I must remind you of it, because there are certain general principles which must govern our interpretation of this. And we derive the principles from what he has been saying in the previous ten verses. The guiding principle is this, that we are to reckon as being true of ourselves what the Apostle has, also, has already been telling us is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the principle that governs our exposition. The very words uh, likewise and also make that something which is abundantly clear. Then that leads us to the second principle, is th which is this, that this is of necessity, therefore, not an experimental statement. It's not a question of experience, this. Because it is, as I've just been saying, uh, that we are to reckon something as being true of ourselves, which is already true of him. And therefore, we must not begin to think in terms of our consciousness of sin within us and how we are going to get rid of it, because there never was any sin in him at all, and he never had any consciousness of sin. So it's a non-experimental statement. Indeed, uh, it has nothing to do directly with our fight against sin. We are told here to realize and to hold before ourselves and in our consciousness constantly something that is already true of us. It's not an exhortation to us to do anything with regard to sin, but to realize what has already been done to us with respect to our relationship to sin. It's a statement, in other words, about our position, our standing, our status, our general condition. And I must emphasize this, it is an exhortation to us to remember what is already true of us. It urges us to realize what has already happened to us, those of us who are Christian, those of us who are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he tells us, we began to see last Friday, is this. That we are already in an entirely new position and standing with respect to sin. Now, this is something that we've got to believe solely because the Word of God tells us that. You don't experience your position. You're told it and you believe it. That is what justification by faith alone means. We have this word of God which tells us that this is God's way of salvation. And we've got nothing but the word of God. Nothing at all. 
I reminded you at the end last Friday that we've all got to do what Abraham did, as the apostle has already reminded us in chapter 4. God came to Abram when he was aged 99 and Sarah over 90, and he said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It seemed utterly impossible, yet Abram believed it. Why? Well, simply because it was God who was saying it. Now that, says the apostle, is what every person who is a Christian does. He or she just takes the bare word of God, believes it, submits to it, and acts upon it. And that is what we have to do with this. It's no use a man coming to me and saying, but how can I say that I am indeed dead unto sin when I'm conscious of sin within me and I feel I'm a terrible sinner? My answer is that you've got to believe it in spite of those feelings, exactly as Abraham had to believe God's word that Sarah was going to bear a son, though he knew that at the age of 99, and Sarah being over 90, the thing was a sheer impossibility on the natural level. Abram felt it was untrue. It couldn't happen. In spite of all such feelings, he believed God. So have you and I. Now that's what this statement is exhorting us to do. Not experimental, not experience. But we've got to take this word that if we are in Christ, if we are joined to Christ, and that is the truth about every believer in him, well then we are already dead to sin even as he is dead to sin. Now then, let us work this out. What does this mean? Well, we are to realize constantly that it means this, first and foremost, that we have died once and forever to the realm and the rule and the reign of sin and death. Now, I've said that many times before, but I must go on saying it. The apostle has said it many times before himself. He goes on repeating it, and he goes on repeating it for this good reason, that we all know perfectly well that it's the thing that the devil would hinder our believing. So he's got to go on saying it, and I go on saying it. We've got to believe that because we are in Christ and joined to him, that as it is true to say of him that he died unto sin once and forever, so we have. We have finished with the realm and the rule and the reign of sin. Secondly, we have got to believe and to realize that we have done that once and forever, I say. And I want to emphasize that. You notice that we read about our Lord, that in that he died, he died unto sin once, which we saw meant once and forever. Then it, he goes beyond that and says this, Death hath, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. He died once and once and forever. He will never die again. He's finished with that. He's done it once and forever. Now I say that we have to believe that the same thing is true of us. That our finishing with the condition and the rule and the realm of sin and death is something that has been finished with once and forever. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, I say and I must assert 
that never again will I go back into the bondage and the captivity and the realm and the rule and the reign of sin. Never. That's true of him. I am in him. I am joined to him. So it is true of me. It must be true of me. That's the whole point that the apostle is trying to prove. Because he's still dealing with the man who says, Oh, this teaching of yours means uh, let us continue in sin, therefore that grace may abound. Not at all, says the apostle. You've been taken out of that realm and you'll never go back into it. You will never again return to that bondage. But I must go even a step further in the third place and say this. That as it is true to say of the Lord Jesus Christ that death hath no more dominion over him, it is true to say it of us also. What we are exhorted here, therefore, to say to ourselves as Christians is, death hath no more dominion over me, because I am a Christian, and because I am in Christ Jesus. But surely, says someone, that must be wrong, because we all have to die. Christian people, though they're Christians and though they're in Christ, still have to die. How can you say, therefore, that death hath no more dominion over the Christian, over the believer? Now, this is a very wonderful thing, and obviously a thing that even as Christian people, we are constantly tending to forget. Now, let me make the assertion again. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Now, in other words, what is true of him is true of me. What is true of him? Well, here it is. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. And I'm arguing that as I am delivered from the dominion and the territory and the realm of sin, so I am also delivered already from the dominion of death. How do you establish that, says someone? Well, I do it like this. The apostle himself goes on to do this very thing. Take what he says in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, for instance, where you read, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There is part of the answer. But let me give you further answers that the apostle gives elsewhere. Take, for instance, this from 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Though our outward men perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Hold that in your mind. Then go on and consider this from 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, and so on. Then add to those statements... A statement made by our Lord in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. 
And in verse 25 and verse 26, where you read this. Take verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is, has, passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. But this most striking statement of all, I think, is in the 11th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. And here I'm going to read from verses 25 and 26. Jesus said unto her, that is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now, I feel like asking the question that our Lord asked Martha to you at this moment. Do you believe that? Listen to it again in verse 26. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, how do you explain a statement like that? Here is a statement that whosoever believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall never die. But you say we have to die. There have been thousands, not to say millions of Christians since our Lord uttered those words. People who have believed on him and on his name. But they have died and have been buried. And yet he says, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now I am suggesting that all these verses that I've just been quoting to you are the explanation of the statement which I made to the effect that Death hath no more dominion over the Christian. It hath no more dominion over our Lord. It hath no more dominion over us. Now then, how do we interpret that statement in John eleven twenty six? Well, clearly it means this. That whosoever liveth and believeth in the Lord Jesus Christ shall never taste everlasting death shall never know what it is to be separated in soul and body from God. Now this is one of the most glorious and comforting truths that we as Christian people shall ever hear. Have you noticed that in the New Testament we are not told that the Christians die, the Christians fall on sleep. Did you notice the statement in that passage I read to you from that great 15th chapter? of the first epistle to the Corinthians at the beginning. Uh, Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does he mean by saying we shall not all sleep? Well, you and I would put it like this, we shall not all die. But he says, we shall not all sleep. Christians fall on sleep. You've got many statements to this effect. You've got a number of statements about this in the first epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 4. Listen, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus 
will God bring with him? Now, this is a very important doctrine. And what it's telling us is that because we are in Christ, though we may pass through death, death hath no more dominion over us. It has no more prescriptive rights over us. It has no legal claim upon us. In being delivered from sin, we are delivered also from the dominion of death. And of course, we've been seeing the reason for that as we've been working our way along. I reminded you that the Lord Jesus Christ was made of a woman and made under the law. And it was because he was made under the law and took our sins upon him that death ever did have power over him. That was why he died. Yes, but he's conquered it. And he's not only conquered it for himself, he has conquered it for all his people. And that is why, you see, you get that extraordinarily interesting statement in the second chapter of the great epistle to the Hebrews, where we read this. For as much then, I'm reading in verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. What all this means is this, that if you and I reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, we shall never be any longer in bondage to the fear of death. He died in order to deliver us from that. And he does so by telling us here quite plainly that death has no more dominion over us. It has dominion over everybody else. They are under the law of sin and death. And the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But we've been delivered from all that. Very well, then let me put it to you in the form of plain and clear doctrine. Because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and because of what has happened to him, and because of our union with him, it is true of us to say this. One, that our whole relationship to sin and all it can do has been entirely changed. We are no longer in the position that we were when we were born as the children of Adam. We were then under the dominion, under the reign and the rule of sin. That is no longer the position. We've been translated out of that into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So I go further and say... That sin has no longer any dominion over us. Though we may still have contact with it in our bodies. Now there is a very vital distinction. It has no more dominion over us, though we still have contact with it in our bodies. Thirdly, we are no longer under the law. Our Lord has finished with the law as far as we are concerned. We are no longer under law. We are under grace, as he points out in verse 14. Our relationship to the law has finished in that sense. And I must go on and add that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. 
He says that in the first verse of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But I must go further. There never shall be, there never will be. Now we cannot say this too strongly. Because this is the essential part of the Apostle's teaching. Our Lord's relationship to the law, which was temporary, has finished forever. He is no longer under the law. He is alive unto God. So are we. I am not only not under the condemnation of the law at this minute, I never shall be. My whole relationship to the law, something that is against me and that condemns me, has finished once and forever. There is no such thing as falling from grace. If I am in Christ, I am in Christ. He dieth no more, neither shall I. The sting of death has been taken out as far as we are concerned. That's why Paul, at the end of that great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, asks us to rejoice and to be triumphant. And we must look at death and the grave and challenge them and say, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory. No, no, I have finished with these things once and forever. And the next deduction is this one. That even the dominion of death over us no longer remains. In the wisdom of God, it may be that we shall have to pass through death. There will sometime be a generation of Christians that won't even have to pass through it. As the Apostle says, those who remain at the second coming of our Lord, they won't die at all. They won't pass through death. You see, there is no legal right. Death has lost all that. They will just be changed and glorified as they are standing on the earth. But it may be that the, those of us who are here will have to pass through death. But it will have no claims upon us. There will be no bitterness in it. There will be no suffering in it. We will sleep in Jesus. We will fall into his bosom as it were. Its terrors have gone. The terror of death is taken away once and forever. Indeed, as the apostle himself puts it so plainly and so clearly, at the end of the eighth chapter, you remember in that tremendous challenge of his, he says, I am persuaded that neither death, that's the thing he puts first, death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me be very practical. You know, there are far too many Christian people who talk like this. They say, you know, I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid that in that physical act of death my mind may become clouded or something and I may lose my faith. Or I may say things that I don't really believe. How can I be responsible there? They're afraid of this dissolution of the body. They may be afraid of becoming old. They may be afraid of the failure of their faculties and of their powers. But you've no right to be afraid of that. There is nothing that shall separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thickened arteries, failure of your brain, 
You may die in a state that appears like insanity. You may blaspheme. You may deny all you've ever believed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make the slightest difference. The decay of your body does not affect your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in him. And the failure and the decay of the body doesn't matter at all. Now I'm emphasizing this because I've known Christian people very troubled about this. I can't remember whether I've told you before, but I'll tell, you the, tell it you now, therefore, lest I haven't said it before, of an experience I once had. I was called to see a, a very saintly old man who was on his deathbed. And I was called in by his doctor as well as the members of his family. They were in great distress. What was the cause of the distress? Well, it was this. There was that dear and great old saint using the most foul language that I think I've ever heard. One wondered where he'd even heard the words himself. But there he was, swearing, cursing. It was a puzzle and a problem to his family and to everybody else. How could this great saint be doing a thing like that? Had he ever been a Christian? Was it conceivable that he ever could have been a Christian if he was now behaving in this manner? Well, to me it was no problem at all. You see, it isn't what you and I do and say that determines whether we are Christians or not. That man was doing what he was doing for one reason only, and that was it was the sheer failure of his circulatory system. He was not responsible for what he was saying. He wasn't himself. He was no longer the man he'd been. His body was breaking up. It was breaking down. He didn't know what he was doing. That man whose name happened to be Thomas Davis, let me use it in order to make it clear, it wasn't Thomas Davis who was speaking those things. It was just this poor tent in which he'd been living, which was dissolving, was breaking up, disintegrating. And physically, therefore, and in a machine sense, he wasn't functioning as he should have been. But it has no relationship to his soul and the relation of his spirit to God whatsoever. Now, I'm saying, therefore, you see, that we must believe the words of Scripture when they tell us, I am persuaded, which means that I am certain and sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, no. Death no longer has any dominion over us. You needn't be afraid of death. Death can't separate you from him and from his love. It, 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 it's incapable of doing it. Its sting has been taken out. It's been shorn of its powers. We still just pass through death. But we don't die. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Had you realized that? You're never going to die. There may be a dissolution of your bodily functions and powers, but you are never going to die. But the unbeliever is going to die. He's going to experience the horror of death. He's going to taste death. But never will a Christian taste death. Never. Let us not be misled, therefore, by that which is purely physical. But let us reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Indeed, I must go on to say this, that this is a further deduction out of it. We must learn to say with the Apostle Paul, 
that not only has death no more dominion over us, but that death indeed to us is a gain. He's in a strait betwixt two, he tells the Philippians. He knows it's a good thing for them that he should stay with them, but not as far as he himself is concerned. As far as he is concerned, it is to be with Christ, which is far better, he says. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Well, if to die is gain, death can't have any dominion over him, can it? A thing that tyrannizes over you and has a dominion over you, that's not gain, but it's no longer that, says Paul. I can smile in the face of death. Death has no power over me. It has no legal rights over me. There is nobody that can demand my death. It is in the will of God, perhaps, that I should be allowed to pass through it, but it's gain. I get a complete victory over it. It leads me immediately into his presence to be with Christ which is far better. Now then, we are to reckon these things. These are the things we are to be saying to ourselves constantly. We look into the future. We don't know what's going to happen to us. Things may happen to the body. It doesn't matter. If we are in Christ, we have finished forever with the dominion and the rule and the reign of sin and of death. And we have nothing to look forward to except complete and perfect glory. Death, as far as we are concerned, is such a defeated enemy that to pass through it really becomes the greatest gain imaginable. And that is why, you know, it's really sinful for those of us who are Christians to be afraid of death in any shape or form. It is sheer ignorance of what it means to be with Christ. It is sheer ignorance of the glory to which we are going, the mansions which Christ has prepared for us and for our reception. That's it. Those are the things that are found here in this statement. Reckon yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed unto sin. But I want to draw one other deduction, which is this. We must learn, I say, to look at ourselves in our relationship to sin and death in that way. So let me put it like this, to be a bit more practical yet. Sin, I say, and I must assert this, sin can never make me its slave again. It can never make me its captive again. You'd like to hear the way that the Apostle John states that, wouldn't you? Well, there it is in his first epistle, in chapter 3, and in verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, by which he means does not practice sin, does not go on living in sin and committing it and practicing it. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. He doesn't say that, it's, that he's incapable of committing an act of sin. What he does say is that he cannot go on in the slavery and the dominion of sin. That's impossible. So the position of the Christian now is this. When a Christian sins, he doesn't sin as a slave, but he sins as a free man who is choosing to do that which is wrong. 
Do we get the significance of that distinction? A man who is not a Christian sins as a slave. He is in the bondage, he is in the captivity. He is one of the people whom the strong man armed keepeth in peace. He has no choice. He can't get out. He can't stop sinning. He can't live the Christian life. It's impossible. He's under the dominion of sin and of Satan, and he'll be clubbed on the head if he tries to get out. They try to get out regularly, but they never succeed. They're slaves, and they sin as slaves. Yes, but the Christian who sins doesn't sin as a slave. He's no longer there. He's here. You remember the illustration. He's crossed the road. He's been translated from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's dear son. He's there. And when he falls, he falls there, not there. This is of tremendous significance. And yet I find in my pastoral experience that more people trip up over this than perhaps over anything else at all. Can't you see, my dear friend, that it's your status and your position that matters so much? I sometimes use this illustration. Imagine yourself at the foot of a mountain, and you're walking along the level and you fall. Very well, you've fallen, haven't you? All right. But now imagine that you've climbed up that mountain and you've got two-thirds of the way to the summit, and you're standing and you're still climbing. Suddenly you fall. Is your falling up there identical with your falling down here? Of course it isn't. But there are many Christian people who seem to think it is because they come to me and they say, you know, I've fallen into sin. I don't think I've ever been a Christian. They're putting themselves back at the foot of the mountain. They don't realize that while it is true to say that they've fallen, they haven't fallen back to the, to the ground floor, as it were. They've simply fallen two-thirds of the way up. And doesn't that make a difference? They haven't got to climb all that two-thirds once more. No, no, they've simply got to get up from where they are and go on. The point at which you fall is of tremendous importance. And you don't go all the way back to the foot of the mountain because you fall. You can fall a foot short of the summit. Oh yes, you've fallen into sin, but you're near the, the summit of the mountain. Now that's the position of the Christian. He is no longer where he was. He's in an entirely different position. He's in a different realm. He can fall there, yes, but he never falls again into the slavery. He never goes back into the dominion. He never goes back into the territory. He's fallen at a different point. He doesn't sin as a slave. He sins as a free man. Let me use again my illustration about the slaves that were set at liberty after the American Civil War. You see, there were people who'd been born as slaves and brought up as slaves and who'd lived as slaves and they'd got into the habit of thinking as slaves. But you see, that war decided the question, slavery is abolished. But for many years, many of them, and especially the older ones, kept on forgetting that they were at liberty. And they went on behaving as if they were slaves. The same fear, the same terror, there was no need for it now. Because they were no longer slaves, but they felt exactly as they'd felt before, and fell as they'd felt fallen before, but they needn't have done. Whether they realized it at the moment or not, the fact is that they were no longer slaves. That had been abolished. They were out of that realm. 
And what they had to do and to train themselves to do was to go on reminding themselves that there was no longer a state of slavery, that they were no longer slaves, that that man no longer was their owner. He might have still been their master, but now they were voluntary servants. Before he owned them, he no longer owns them. Reckon, they had to reckon themselves to be no longer slaves. And it took some time because we all tend to act according to habits and customs and practices which have been long ingrained. And the way to get rid of all that is to tell yourself what's true about yourself, that you're no longer a slave, but that you're a free man. And that is what I mean when I say that the Christian no longer sins as a slave, but he sins as a free man. And that is why I say he's always a fool when he sins. The compulsion is gone. It is he now who yields voluntarily. His whole position, his whole condition is changed. But I must go on and add even to that. And it is an essential part of this teaching. Nothing and no one, not even the devil himself, can ever make a Christian again a slave to sin and its consequences. We are dead indeed unto sin, to its realm, its rule, its reign, its power. I may be conscious of its activities in my body, but I am not under its dominion. And surely this is something which I was almost on the point of saying is even true in experience. And it does become true in experience as you realize this, this truth and then as you begin to apply it and to examine yourself, you will find that it is actually true. Can you look back to a stage when you were a non-Christian and living the life of sin? Do you remember your attitude towards it then? Is that your attitude towards it now? Of course it isn't. Our whole attitude to sin has changed. And that is why you see it's important to realize the truth about the so-called backslider. What is a backslider? Well, a backslider is a child of God, is a Christian, who falls into sin. Why do I call him a backslider? Why don't I say of him that he was never a Christian at all? That is what many people say about him. Why do I draw the distinction? I do it for this reason. The way to test whether a man is a backslider or whether he's never been a Christian at all is this. If he is a Christian who is backsliding... He is miserable as he is sinning. If, on the other hand, the truth about him is that he has never been converted at all and has never been a Christian, but just perhaps for the time being under some psychological influence or something else, gave up doing that particular sin and has now returned to it, he won't be miserable as he does it again. He'll enjoy it. And rather feel that he was a bit of a fool when he gave it up. But if he's a child of God, if he's regenerated and in Christ, though he is actually committing acts of sin, he's miserable. He's under a sense of condemnation. He's unhappy. He's in a terrible condition. 
He hates himself. He hates the whole thing. And yet he goes on doing it. And I'll add one further thing about him. He will for certain be restored. It is one of the final proofs of backsliding. A backslider, because he is a child of God, will not be allowed to continue like that. It will be stopped. He will be brought back. Because he is in Christ. Now I trust that that makes it plain and clear. That we must reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto the whole realm and rule and reign of dom- and dominion of sin and of the law and of death. We have finished with it. Once and forever. And of course the moment you realize that, you begin to see its inevitable consequences in the realm of conduct and of behavior. But before we come to draw those deductions, we shall have to go on next Friday, God willing, to the positive half of the verse that we are looking at, where we are told that we are to reckon not only that we are dead indeed unto sin, but also that we are alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But I do trust that we're all clear about our relationship to sin and to death. I do hope we can all say death hath no longer any terrors now. I do hope we can all say thanks be unto God with which giveth us the victory. I do hope that we can stand and challenge death and the grave and defy them. Because we know that Christ has conquered them and we are in him and that they no longer have any dominion over us. We may have to pass through them. We may be bothered a lot by sin while we are still here, but no more dominion, no more power, no more authority, no more rights. We've finished with it. We are free from sin and death. We are free in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we know not again how to thank Thee for this amazing truth. We feel, O God, that we are so slow to learn, have so much unbelief in us still, are so ready to be content with the first principles only, of the gospel of Christ are interested in forgiveness alone and not concerned to see the whole change in our position and standing and realm. O God, wilt thou bring these truths that we have considered together this evening with power and force into our minds and hearts. O grant us the power to reckon ourselves likewise, to be dead indeed unto sin, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear us in his beloved name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit 
abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall see him as he is in glory and be like him. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.